Um, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, and we will be in the first 11 verses tonight. Philippians 3, uh, 1 through 11. Let's begin by reading the passage. Paul the Apostle, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may, maintain, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for... Uh, this time as we approach your word. Help us, we ask, by your spirit. Uh, illumine our minds, open our hearts to the truth you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. What makes you happy? What brings you joy? For some of you, it's the simple things. A good laugh, the perfect bite of pizza, uh, maybe having just the right number of eggs before you go to the grocery store, or videos of things that are oddly satisfying. For some of you, it's a little nerdier. It's finding out all your classes are pre-recorded, so you can play them in two times speed. For some, it's a clean room. And for others, it's a clean slate. In all of these things, there is a sense of satisfaction or enjoyment or fulfillment that we find joy in. Now, what is the one thing right now that if it were to happen, it would make you happier than anything in the world? What would bring you joy more than anything? This is sort of the desert island question of what brings you joy. What is that one thing? Maybe it's if you have an internship this summer, or you have grad school acceptances roll in, or if you're a senior, maybe it's a job that's lined up with a certain salary, and at least two days of work from home on the contract. Maybe it's for you that that person would like you back. Or it's that you would be in a certain city in five years. Or that maybe you'd be driving a certain kind of car, because that would mean that a whole bunch of other things are happening right. And I guess the car is kind of nice too. Maybe it's family relationships restored or uh, friendships restored from old times. What brings you joy in life? Now, my goal tonight isn't to rob you of all of these joys in life, but I want you to 
genuinely consider as we look at this passage that most everything that you think of as joys on both a simple daily level uh, and on a bigger, wider life level, uh, most of these things revolve around you. Your joy is based on your satisfaction, your fulfillment, your settledness, or your comfort, your status maybe, or your sense of accomplishment with something. What brings you joy is invariably centered on you. Well, tonight we come to one of the mountaintops of Philippians, a kind of a highlight, underline, memorized kind of passage. Uh, some of you, this page in your Bible is worn out. And this passage tonight, I pray, will help us examine afresh what brings us joy. Throughout Philippians, we have caught glimpses of this joy that we've talked about, a joy that exceeds and transcends all earthly joys, a, Joy that somehow Paul has been describing and even exemplifying from prison, which is for him a less than ideal situation. But, but as he looks up from his chains, he somehow is able to find this kind of joy. It's the kind of joy that helps him to think upon the fellowship and the participation and the growth of the Philippian church. It's a joy that gives him happiness and in the proclamation and the progress of the gospel, even whether in pretense or in truth. It's a joy in the unity of these believers, even. And all of this characteristic of a joy that Paul has shown us that is found outside of ourselves, instead rooted in an existence that to live is Christ and to die is is gain. And so here at this vista in chapter 3, this true and transcendent joy is the very air we breathe in this passage. This is the source. Here is the fountain from which transcendent joy springs forth. And so I pray that we drink deeply tonight of this truth. You see, in our passage tonight, we get to the very heart of transcendent joy. Indeed, the secret to true Christian joy. The supreme joy that for the Christian defines all other joys. That brings meaning and purpose to all other joys. A joy that transforms other joys and holds all other joys up. And it's a joy outside ourselves. The transcendent joy of knowing Christ. Tonight we'll see from Paul's own testimony that over and against all effort and accolades, true joy is found in knowing Christ. That compared to all earthly satisfactions, whether possessions or positions or power, true and lasting Joy can only be found in knowing Christ. And so Paul shows us this transcendent joy from three perspectives. The first of those perspectives is in verses 1 through 3, and it's the confidence of true joy. The confidence of true joy. Here in verse 1, as Paul uh, begins chapter 3, he seems to begin to land the plane in this letter. He says, finally, brothers. And yet, as you and I know, as we're ending something, sometimes, whether it's a, for me a sermon or for you a paper or maybe a good book, something else comes to mind and it keeps going. And that's what happens with Paul here. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And there has been, as we've just discussed, a constant thread of transcendent joy woven distinctly throughout this letter. And so here in chapter 3, Paul is 
reiterating the same theme. And he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble. In fact, he says, it is safe for you. You see, Paul knows what's good for these Philippian believers. Uh, They are a model ministry in so many regards. Uh, We haven't seen much warning or much correction so far in this letter. And yet Paul here considers this safe. They need it. We need it. Even when we don't think we need this kind of simple, basic instruction, Paul says it's a safeguard. It's helpful. This is truth that reinforces our joy and stirs up our hearts for joy in Christ once again. In the Philippians' case, this is safe because in their midst looms a threat that is familiar to Paul. And so he rehearses this, what seems like basic truth, here to warn them of false teachers teaching a religiosity that offers a counterfeit confidence and therefore a counterfeit joy. Look at verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul is warning against this group. We see all over the New Testament in Romans and Galatians and Colossians, to name a few books. Uh, These people are called the Judaizers, or sometimes called the circumcision party. Uh, This group were adding to the grace of God in salvation, uh, teaching the necessity of the works of the law, uh, that to be right with God, you had to adhere to the Mosaic law. So that's why in Galatians, Paul calls what they teach a different gospel. Not a gospel of grace, but a different gospel. A threat to the true gospel. Specifically here in Philippians, what's in view is that this group was already in their midst, or maybe soon to be in their midst, maybe in their community somewhere, and they were insisting that the Jewish rite of circumcision was necessary for salvation. Now, we won't take this perfect opportunity on a Friday night to dive deep into what circumcision is. You can figure that out on your own time. But suffice it to say that circumcision was uh, what God had ordained in Genesis 17 for his people, Israel, as a physical sign of his covenant with them. And so these Judaizers, this group of false teachers, are imposing the necessity of circumcision, making it a requirement for genuine salvation. And so Paul is warning the Philippians about this kind of false religion, this kind of fleshly confidence, he calls it. And he uses here carefully crafted words, words that would be familiar to the Judaizers and to the Jews in the church in Philippi. First, he says this, look out for the dogs. Look out for the dogs. Now, we live in a culture where dogs belong in your purse and on your lock screen. And so half of you are saying, I'm down. I can look out for the dogs. Uh, What time should I put out the food? But to the ancient world, dogs were, I'm sorry to say this, you dog lovers, they were mongrels. They were dirty animals. They, in Scripture, represented all that was unclean. And so in L.A. terms, think more dirty coyote or raccoon kind of vibe. You see, to the Jewish mind, Gentiles, outsiders, were dogs. If you look at the Old Testament, they were the outsiders, the beggars, the unclean, undeserving to the blessings and the promises of God. Consider Jesus' instruction, Matthew 7, uh, pearls before swine. Right before that, he says, do not give dogs what is holy or In Matthew 15, when Jesus is testing the faith of the Canaanite woman, he uses a nicer term for dog, but the same concept, and he says, it is not right 
to take the children's bread, that is Israel's bread, and throw it to the dogs. And so here, Paul flips this picture on the Judaizers, and he says, instead, they are the dogs. They are the ones outside of God's blessing because they are adding to the grace of God with their rites of circumcision. I did too. <laughs> Secondly, Paul says this, look out for the evildoers. And now these Judaizers are fastidiously doing the works of the law. They are following God's commandments to the very best of their knowledge and ability. And yet we know uh, Romans 3.20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. It's plain and clear in Scripture. Titus 3.5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness even, but according to his own mercy. And so Paul flips this again on the Judaizers, and rich with irony here, he calls them the evildoers, literally evil workers, because in what they are doing in adding to the grace of God, they are doing evil in the sight of God. Paul warns this way, thirdly, he says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, literally the mutilation. You see, in circumcision, what was to be this careful, meaningful act of obedience as to one's flesh is to Paul here in the way that these uh, Judaizers are commanding it. It is mutilation. It is destruction. This is reminiscent of the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 17 who mutilate themselves as they are defeated. And why is this mutilation? Because it heinously adds to the grace of God in salvation. It dares approach the throne and gatekeep in front of God. Paul's warning here, which is safe for the Philippians to hear and safe for our souls tonight. This kind of fleshly confidence is not the pathway to true Christian joy. This kind of prideful insistence on human effort, on obedience that adds to the grace of God is not the abandonment of self-righteousness and confidence only in the righteousness of Christ that is characteristic to the true saving gospel of Jesus. Paul's warning here is what he argues in Galatians 5. Flip there just to look at what I'm talking about. We'll see tonight that the truths in Philippians 3 are expounded and expanded in instruction in other books, in Galatians and in Romans particularly. These kinds of doctrines are expanded for their context. And in Galatians 5, Paul is fighting a similar battle, but more fiercely, more intensely than the church in Galatia. In Galatians 5, he argues that to place circumcision or any other human works for that matter as the entry point to communion with God would be to, look at verse 4, to be severed from Christ. He says there, you will have fallen from grace if you add to the grace of God. And then go back to verse 2. He says, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Jesus, the Son of God, who died on the cross for your sins, if you add to the salvation that he achieved, you will have no advantage in him anymore. So you might as well give him up. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Paul says this, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Grace on campus, the confidence of true joy is not found in following rules or trying harder or doing better or requiring ourselves or other people to add to the grace of God in some way and 
vain attempts to earn favor with him, as if to obey is to give you confidence that you passed some test. The confidence of true joy is instead in embracing the freedom of Christ that he has won for us. Freedom from sin and freedom from the bondage of our flesh. And yes, indeed, to live a life of worship to him, in obedience to him, but to give up even our fleshly desire to think that we can earn God's favor in some way. Go back to Philippians 3. It's why here in Philippians 3, look at verse 3, Paul says this, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The confidence of true joy is found in a life of worship empowered by the Spirit of God in us. Not of self-empowered self-righteousness. The confidence of true joy is found in a life whose only boast is Christ for His all-sufficient work on the cross. Not one that makes vainglorious attempts to justify itself. The confidence of true joy is found in a life that in fact puts no confidence in the flesh and has instead humble, resting confidence only in the finished work of Christ on the cross. You see, friends, when the eternal destiny of your soul is not based on your own efforts or earning but instead rests firmly on the righteousness of Christ, that is confidence of true joy. When our only confidence is that our souls belong to him, Paul says here, we are the true circumcision. We are the real people of God. Those who are truly under his blessing and of his fold. We are then those who know him and love him and therefore find joy in him. Second perspective of this passage that helps us to find true joy is the economy of true joy. The economy of true joy. In verses 4 through 8, we see in Paul's own personal testimony a value system an economy, and it's the value system of true joy. Now, as we pursue this transcendent joy, these verses, I believe, show us just how radically we need to think about ourselves and our obedience and our merit, and how radically we need to think about Christ as the basis, the only basis for our joy in this life. Here in these verses, Paul shows us first his spiritual resume. Now, this is Paul's LinkedIn. This is his email signature. I've seen y'all's email signatures, you know. Paul the Apostle, BA candidate in philosophy maybe, that this is Paul's PowerPoint about his own life. Yes, I've seen those of yours as well. Now, Paul's spiritual resume is impressive from end to end. You see, his PowerPoint has more slides than any of us would have. He's got an obnoxious email signature with all kinds of letters after his name. And he's got a whole lot higher of a LinkedIn score than you or I do. Paul lists seven things here. The first four of these things are inherited privileges, things he was born into or born with. And then the latter three are his own personal achievements. First, look at verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day. Now, Paul, according to 
God's given instruction in Genesis 17 and Leviticus 12 and other similar passages. Paul was properly circumcised by his God-fearing parents seven days after birth in covenant devotion to God, the eighth day. So literally the phrase here is, with respect to circumcision, an eight-day one. So he's an eighth-dayer, you could say. Paul was born into obedience to God. It was in his DNA. And he was born into spiritual privilege. Uh, He describes himself next as of the people of Israel. He, He was a true Israelite born into a Jewish family on both sides. He was ethnically, purely, and deservedly part of the children of Israel. He was part of the people of God. Paul describes himself then, thirdly, as of the tribe of Benjamin. You see, uh, many Jews in that day didn't even know what tribe they were from. But Paul uh, not only knew which tribe he had descended from, Paul was of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, the tribe of Benjamin had, uh, had the best land, arguably, in the Holy Land. Uh, they had all kinds of leaders descend from their ranks. And this tribe of Benjamin had, through uh, ups and downs, stayed loyal to Yahweh and to Judah and to the Davidic dynasty. And so Paul was not only of pure Israelite lineage, he was born into one of the elite tribes. And then fourthly, Paul says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. You see, even though Paul was himself born outside of Holy Land in Tarsus, uh, Paul was well-trained in the Hebrew language and in Hebrew culture and customs and traditions. Acts 22 tells us that he was educated under the Rabbi Gamaliel, which uh, was like elite private school education for a Jewish young person. And so, so far in verse 5, we have this pristine picture of the Apostle Paul. Uh, He was born into God-fearing heritage and spiritual privilege, able to learn the things of God even at a young age. Now look at the end of verse 5. This is where Paul really digs in with his personal achievements. As to the law, a Pharisee. You see, before his conversion, Paul was a Pharisee. He was part of this elite, moralistic denomination whose name literally means separated ones. They followed strict rules. For example, they would eat only with practicing Jews. They would check before they sat down with you at the dinner table. They piled up laws that kept them from anyone or anything that would be unclean. So Paul, this Pharisee, he kept his desk clean, he kept his nose clean, and he kept his heart clean. Or so he thought. See, because next, verse 6, as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. As a passionate Pharisee, Paul back then Saul, was one of the originators, one of the perpetrators of a reign of terror against the early Christian church. In the eyes of the Jewish establishment, Christianity was a heretical religion. These Christians were stirring up trouble and stealing glory from Yahweh, following this so-called Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And so to the Jews, the godliest of the godly were those whose religious zeal compelled them to defend their religion by persecuting Christians. Flip over to Acts 22, just to look at a few verses, and we need to hear from Paul's own mouth about his former persecution of Christians. Paul is testifying uh, before a crowd. He's just been arrested, and he's giving testimony as to why he serves Jesus. Acts 22, look at verse 4. I persecuted this 
way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as to the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul, persecutor of Christians, on the road to Damascus, and he met Christ. This was Saul. This was Paul as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And finally, in Philippians 3, Paul describes himself as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Blameless. You see, as far as the eye could see, or as much as the mind could know, Paul was fastidiously devoted to keeping God's law. He was blameless in his own eyes and seemingly above reproach in the eyes of others. Before his conversion, Paul was a spiritual superstar. These seven things show us. He would be this kind of blue checkmark kind of person. And he wouldn't have had to pay for it either. He would have been in the Jewish establishment, a thought leader, a, a mover and a shaker. But don't miss Paul's logic here. Look at verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul is saying here in verses 4 to 8, if we were to count spiritual privilege, if we were to count personal achievement if the economy of true christian joy were based on me based on us uh, who we are what we do how well we obey then paul is saying here i would have won i am i have i've done all these things i have all this gain but what does paul say here look at verse 7 but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. For the sake of Christ, everything that Paul knew and did and found worth in, uh, the position and the power he had, he counted it all as loss. For the sake of Christ, in surrendering himself before his Lord and Savior on that dusty road to Damascus, Paul's complete world was turned upside down. His whole value system was flipped, and now everything in life was spent for the joy of knowing Christ. This is the economy of true joy. Uh, we find Joy, we find confidence, not in who we are or what we do, but in Christ, and only in Christ. Like some of you, I started UCLA pre-BizEcon, emphasis on the pre. Now, if you're pre is econ, or if you're a sophomore and you're econ, you know what I'm saying, you, you take accounting 1A at the end of your freshman year, and you figure out who's the real deal and who's Joe Schmo. In accounting 1A, you learn by yourself basic bookkeeping and how to deal with debits and credits, and for me, after a few weeks, I realized I couldn't balance a budget. My ledgers made no sense. And so I, at that point, took the pre out of BizEcon and the BizEcon out of BizEcon. <laughs> and I traveled further north, so to speak. Now, when I was reading this passage this week, just meditating on the truth here, I'm 
kind of kidding when I say this, but I'm kind of not. I, I find great comfort in seeing that in this passage, I'm a whole lot like Paul. You see, this ledger in Philippians chapter 3 makes no sense. This budget doesn't balance from a normal perspective. Uh, this economy of true joy is an economy that makes no earthly sense uh, because it's an economy that appends uh, what we in our flesh hold dear. It's an economy that instead clings only to Christ. You see, in surrendering your life to Christ, all of the things that you had considered gain or advantage or godliness points, you now consider in Christ loss, disadvantage even, collateral. This word loss here is the word Paul himself actually uses in Acts 27 as he's experiencing shipwreck. He says to the fellow shipmates, he says, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, he says. Here, for the sake of Christ, we ought to find any and every reason for confidence in the flesh that we have on this ship and throw it overboard, forsaking all for the instead true and transcendent joy. And that joy is found only, only, only in knowing Christ. Verse 8 emphasizes the present and ongoing nature of this. Verse 7 is more of in sort of a past tense. And so verse 8 presents us with a, an ongoing nature of this. Look there. Indeed, I can. Everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The idea here is I still am counting. I continue to count everything as loss. Friends, a relationship with Jesus is not just a one-time incidental loss of worldly baggage. It's not just a one-off deep clean. It's not just a momentary trade-off of your own merit for the merit of the sinless Son of God and then you go on your way. The joy of knowing Christ is that it is an ongoing, lifelong pursuit of relationship that does indeed change your values and priorities. But the joy of knowing Christ is that it is the deep and intimate and real experience of a relationship with Christ that it is. You see, this isn't just a set of facts or a dogma to ascribe to, but it is to know and to serve and to love and to behold and to live for this Jesus whose worth far surpasses anything or anyone. Turn to Matthew 13 to see this surpassing value of knowing Christ. Matthew 13 is where Jesus is teaching a series of parables about the kingdom of heaven. And I just love the brevity and the power of these two parables. Look at verse 44. Matthew 13, 44. Jesus himself says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. These two parables picture for us the supreme value of the kingdom of heaven and the king of that kingdom, Jesus himself, and the surpassing value, the worth of that king. It's worth trading everything you have for him. Turn over to Matthew 16. This is Jesus' call to discipleship. It's his active call to 
followers, to disciples, to take up their cross and deny themselves and to follow him. Look at verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me or follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Look at verse 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? See, along with this call to to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus, which is to follow him as he walked down the Via de la Rosa to be crucified. It's to carry your cross and before the watching crowds in Rome to say, like Jesus, I take my cross and I admit all the charges against me are correct because I carry my own cross to my own death. That's what following Jesus is like. Yet see the value in it in verse 25 and 26 that Jesus says, if you lose your own life, if you follow me, to this death to yourself, you will find your life. You will gain true and lasting life. That is the surpassing value, the worth of knowing Jesus. And so in Philippians 3, you can turn back there, Paul is showing us that same truth, the same heavenly economy in operation that the king of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus Christ, who we saw in Philippians 2.11, is the Lord over all, where every knee shall bow, every tongue confess this Lord, that to know him in such a way that we, like Paul in Philippians 3, can call him my Lord. All of that is of surpassing worth to anything this world can offer. And so we should be compelled to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. You see, simply to know Christ is worth trading everything for. If that weren't enough, in the middle of verse 8, Paul doubles down on this value system. Look at the middle of verse 8. He says, For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You see, for the sake of Christ, not only has Paul suffered the loss of all his earthly accomplishments, his status and privileges, his wealth and position, he here in the middle of verse 8 counts these things even more negatively as rubbish, literally the word here is dung or waste or excrement. Paul's understanding is that of Isaiah 64, 6. All of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. You see, to Paul, all of his own privileges, all of his prerogatives, all of his deeds and his did-nots, all were as waste, all a total loss, all worthless, all rubbish. You see, for Paul, this wasn't just click and drag into the recycle bin. This was going through every file. And with a red sharpie, writing a big X over every righteous deed in his past as worthless. In light of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Paul saw that these things, these righteous deeds, these uh, positions and this power were the very things that had kept him from needing a Savior. And so they were worthless to him now. Friends, how easily the spectacle of our own righteousness, even our own pursuit of godliness, doing all this stuff, whether knowingly or not, trying to earn 
the right standing before God, how easily this all becomes an obstruction to us in seeing the joy of knowing Christ. This is the very heart of transcendent joy. It's centered not on self-value, centered not on self-gain or self-worth, not on achievement or position or power, but on discarding all of those once valuable things in pursuit of knowing Christ Jesus as our Lord. What things for you are your reasons for confidence in the flesh? Maybe for some of you, like Paul, these things are part of your spiritual legacy, your lineage. Maybe you're a pastor's kid, or you're the son of an elder, or you're a third-generation Christian. Maybe you grew up in the church, or when you got to GOC, you were in that one guy's small group that everyone said, that's the great small group. Maybe for you, these things that give you confidence in the flesh, like Paul, are what you have achieved. Maybe grown up, you were in a wanna all-star. Uh, maybe you've read more Christian books than everyone around you, or you've done more classes here at GOC, or you know more theology and know how to ask all the questions that stump people. Uh, maybe you have a ministry position, or even the way you've grown uh, now you have nothing left to learn because you're so mature. It may be for you it's something that's a-spiritual. Maybe it's your academic success that you take as a sign of God's blessing on your life. That must mean you're doing well spiritually too. All of these reasons for confidence in the flesh are the things we think we can hold on to as we pass through the narrow gate. But the truth here in Philippians 3 is that you won't fit through with that in your hands. There is only room for one confidence, and that is confidence in Christ. When I look at a group like this, as intelligent and as talented as you all are, I can't help but think that ridding yourself of confidence in the flesh very well might be the most difficult thing about the Christian life for you. That for the sake of Christ, you would give up finding identity and value and stake in your abilities and your achievements. My fear is that for some of you, that might prove too difficult. That you're not willing to give it all up to truly follow Jesus. That in this season of life, maybe you've got such a magnifying glass on earthly things, even good things, such that those things are obscuring your view of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Friends, now is the time to forsake all else, to denounce all confidence in the flesh, all efforts and accolades, and to live solely devoted to Jesus, to loving him and serving him, and to knowing him more each day, to truly believing that to live is Christ and to die is gain, to mold your, your desires to be his desires, and to learn to hate what he hates and to live to see Christ proclaimed and his fame and his glory put on display over and against your own. That's my prayer for you guys. I know it's a formative season in your lives. And these are the decisions you are making. Uh, both with what you study and how you, how you go about studying but also in everyday life, how you spend your time, who you spend your time with, and how much time you spend with your Savior. Behold the surpassing value of knowing Christ and find true joy only in Him. 
the economy of true joy. That Jesus is the only one we ought to have confidence in. I don't think I've ever done this, but we have one more point, but I want to just pause and pray for you guys right now because this this is a decision some of you need to make tonight. And for others of you, it's a recalibration, but we need to ask God's help. Father, we pray that as we examine your word, that, Father, you would do a work in our hearts to behold Jesus and to see the joy in knowing him, to not see faith as a task or following Jesus as heavy labor, but instead, Father, to see and to embrace the loveliness of Christ. Father, I pray for everyone in this room, whether in a salvation kind of way or in a recalibrating kind of way, that, Father, we would see this surpassing value of knowing our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We need to look at just one more thing, the benefits of true joy. Verses 9 to 11, the benefits of true joy. In verses 9 through 11, there are blessings and benefits to knowing Christ other than just what we've looked at. Look at the twofold benefit Paul sees in this. Look at the end of verse 8. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see, in placing faith in Christ and in surrendering his life, Paul sees in this a twofold benefit. Paul sees that he gains Christ. He says that I may gain Christ. It's what we've been looking at, this relationship with Christ that we've been referring to, this infinitely valuable treasure. But Paul also sees in this, uh, in verse 9, the benefit of being found in him. You see, in salvation, we not only gain this priceless treasure of a savior and a friend in Jesus, we are also found in him. Our identity is now found in what the New Testament calls our union with Christ. You see, being found in him, we no longer have a righteousness that is our own, based, our own, based on our own obedience, but through faith in Christ, we obtain righteousness from God, and it's because we are found in him. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5, 21. It speaks of this truth. For our sake, God, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Being found in him, we have the righteousness of God. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And Paul says, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see, what is not possible what is not attainable by our own works we've already seen this in our passage tonight is now made possible through christ and for us being found in him the debt we could not pay for our sin against a holy god we now have paid in full by the righteousness of christ oh what benefit we have in Christ and being found in him. This is the incredible truth I find in, and I see in Romans 1.17. Turn there to look at it with me. Romans 1.17. It's simple truth. I think we read over this so quickly sometimes in familiar verses like this. 
Paul says in 16, 1, 16 of Romans, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Through the gospel, uh, this message of good news, uh, the very righteousness of a holy God, the unattainable perfection required to be in communion with Him is now revealed, is now given to us through faith and through faith alone. Paul talks about this truth that we are found in Him uh, further in Romans. Look at Romans 6. We just need to get a taste of what this is, this union with Christ by which we can have the righteousness of God in the Gospel. Look at verse 4. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Grace on campus, in knowing Christ and being united with Him, being found in Him, our old self is crucified with its fleshly desires and we are raised to newness of life in Him. And as we are found in Him, we know the power of His resurrection. Turn back to Philippians 3. That's verses 10 and 11. Look what Paul says there. That I may may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so now, Christian, You and I have been raised to new life in Him. And we live in that reality. And yet we, like Paul, know with certainty that there is a coming resurrection. The resurrection from the dead in verse 11. And so we have the benefit of both the reality here and now in our new life in Him, raised to life. And yet also what Titus 2 calls the blessed hope of future resurrection. And as we await that sure promise of our future resurrection, the life we live now isn't promised to be all sunshine and butterflies. Think of 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so Paul is saying here in verses 10 and 11, we may very well share in his sufferings, And so, whether by life or by death, by any means possible, like Paul, would we endeavor to attain it, attain the resurrection, not earning it by our own merit, but having confidence in the merit of Christ, and therefore living faithfully, ever so faithfully, into eternity future, in the joy of knowing Him. And as we wait, being found in Him, And so therefore, already, but not yet, resurrected, we steadfastly devote ourselves in faith to the joy set before us, just like our Savior, becoming like Him in His death. Like chapter 2 says, humbly taking on the form of a servant. And we are endeavoring, therefore, to be found faithful. Friends, such is the fullness of benefit in the true and transcendent joy that is ours. And that is found only in knowing Christ. Only in knowing Christ. There's an old song that I think captures this passage so well. I want to end by reading it in its entirety. It goes like this. All I once held dear, built my life upon, All this world reveres and wars to own. 
Oh, I once thought gain, I have counted loss, spent and worthless now compared to this. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all, you're the best, you're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you, Lord. Verse 2, now my heart's desire is to know you more, to be found in you and known as yours, to possess by faith what I could not earn, the all-surpassing gift of righteousness. Oh, to know the power of your risen life and to know you in your sufferings, to become like you in your death, my Lord, so with you to live and never die. That's the joy of knowing Christ, the beauty of knowing Christ. There is no greater thing. He's our all, he's our joy and our righteousness. And so we ought to love him for this great and precious truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for in it we find truth. And tonight we find the truth of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, uh, my Lord. And so thank you, Father, that you sent your Son uh, to pay the penalty for our sin, to open a way to you and to communion with you, a way that is not by our own works of righteousness, but by the righteousness of a perfect and sinless sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so, Father, help us to see the simple truth that we see in this passage, uh, that he is the only confidence we can and should have in this life. And so, Father, we cling to Christ even now as we sing uh, of the value found only in our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.